Hello and welcome to the People Powered Green Left Podcast, where we give a voice to the 99% and not the big corporations. If you think this project is important, please consider becoming a supporter today. Now, on to our latest episode. Um, hi to everyone. Um, you're listening to Green Left, um, and for this episode of Green Left, um, we're going to be hearing um, from a number of teacher activists um, uh, that are in the studio today. Um, their names are Mary Megovich, um, um, Vivian Mesmeris, um, and David Linden, um, who are all um, teachers who are active in their, um, or trade union activists, um, and are also all members of Socialist Alliance. Um, so we have them all in the studio today um, to talk about um, the, the issues that are currently impacting on teachers um, and what teachers are kind of imp- um, um, what kind of teachers are kind of campaigning for in in this period of um, COVID nineteen. Um, and we also have the other presenters, um, Zane Alcorn and Megan Street. Um, and yeah, my name is um, Jacob Andrewafa. And I'll just let the guests um, introduce themselves on the program. My name is Vivian Messimaris and I'm a, I'm a teacher in New South Wales. Hi, my name is Mary Merkinich. I'm a teacher at a Melbourne school. Uh, my name's David Linden. Uh, I'm a teacher in Victoria. Um, so I guess um, maybe to kind of start off uh, a bit of the discussion, um, and I'm interested, I guess, from hearing from all of you, um, Scott Morrison back in mid-April um, you know, despite the fact that even today we aren't completely out of the woods with the COVID-19 pandemic. However, Scott Morrison, as early as mid-April, um, you know, stated to the media that, um, to teachers, that, you know, um, that they shouldn't be forcing parents into a decision between homeschooling their children and footing, putting food on the table. And, of course, has repeatedly urged teachers to start going through a process of reopening schools. And while there's while they, um, while schools have, you know, in a sense reopened in um, since the start of term two, they have been on a much more limited basis. Um, in fact, um, allowing for kind of remote um, learning. And I guess even Scott Morrison has even gone as far as making promises of funding to private um, schools at, um, as almost a way um, to sort of blackmail um, these schools to reopen. Um, I guess. You know, for Vivian, Mary and David, um, I guess what is sort of your political kind of response to these kind of issues that are kind of raised? It's Mary here. Uh, schools in Victoria have not reopened. And in fact, the uh, Victorian government is insisting or was insisting for a long time that schools will not reopen until the end of this term. I think there's about uh, five, something like that, more weeks to go. Uh, However, they may change their minds um, as we proceed, but we'll see. But at the moment, they are not reopened. Um, They are open for uh, the children of those parents who cannot, for whatever reason, send their children, uh, cannot um, have their children stay at home. Um, And I would remind people that this whole discussion always seems to ignore the fact that Schools are workplaces as well as places of learning. So that means that there are people in those workplaces, workers, whether they are teachers, 
with our education support staff, canteen workers, cleaners, um, and sometimes other people who visit schools that um, are also in danger of this virus. And so even if, and it's still not established, but even if it's correct that children on the whole um, are only mildly affected by the virus um, and um, are unlikely to suffer badly, they, I think most people agree that they are carriers. Um, and even if they weren't carriers, adults are. And there's heaps and heaps of adults in these workplaces. So uh, many of those adults are very concerned about their own health, about passing it on to others, including their families, etc. So that issue is very important and always gets ignored by the politicians. And as a couple of well, probably more than a couple of people have pointed out, if Parliament can be closed because the adults in that workplace feel that they have to protect themselves, then why can't the uh, why can't schools? Yeah. Um, I guess um, the kind of next thing to kind of open up with is, I guess, I mean, it, it um, what I guess for the schools that are you know, open and by open, I mean in a limited kind of capacity, because I guess there was this um, case that has happened in Victoria recently uh, where the Meadow um, Glen um, School um, Primary, Meadow Glen Primary in Epping, in, which is in sort of the um, northern parts of, of Melbourne, um, had an outbreak um, recently um, of COVID-19. I guess um, I'm interested in kind of hearing what are schools like personally, what are schools doing um, regardless of whether they're opened in a very limited capacity in terms of ensuring the safety um, for both um, the workers and the students of, um, of us, um, who are parents, who would be parents of essential workers in this, in this um, um, time of the pandemic? I might just respond if I can. Um... Jacob, just on, I guess, some of the previous points and, and that, that question. Um, in the case of New South Wales, uh, perhaps just to clarify that in New South Wales, schools didn't technically close. Um, I think what we saw in late March uh, was really parents um, taking action. So we started seeing in late March, as those numbers were really increasing and the numbers, the COVID infection numbers were, um, from my understanding, on par with the, the numbers in Italy. We were just two weeks behind Italy at that stage. So I think there was a great deal of anxiety in the community and there was certainly a great deal of anxiety in schools from, in my experience, certainly amongst teachers, definitely amongst teachers and definitely amongst students as well. So these were conversations that were occurring in, in, in schools then. And I think we started to see the numbers dropping off in terms of students attending schools. So parents were very worried. Uh, and Gladys Berejiklian, the Premier of New South Wales, said that schools uh, are open. Uh, however, she encouraged if you can keep your children home to keep them at home. Um, so basically taking the position that school is open for the children of essential workers or for the, uh, those, the children that, um, for their parents, those parents that for whatever reason are unable to um, engage in re remote learning and look after them at home. So 
basically what we saw was a massive drop um, of, of 90% of students remaining at home. Um, now, that continues to be the position until Monday of next week, the 11th of May, where schools will reopen in New South Wales. And that is where year groups uh, or a maximum of 25% of will return one day a week. Um, so I guess just want to clarify what the situation is in New South Wales because it's somewhat different to Victoria um, and the debates are slightly different. So I guess to touch on that question of um, what measures are being put in place to ensure the safety of teachers in, and students. So as of um, Monday next week, it's there is a slight difference from school to school. So what we're seeing is that the decisions have been shifted to principals, which, you know, is positive and negative. On the one hand, principals are the best place to know what the needs of their students and communities are. But I guess the negative side means there isn't a uniform measure across the state, a consistent approach to, to how we are dealing with it. Um, the state government and Scott Morrison have also said that it is safe. We do not technically need to implement social distancing measures. So there will be schools and there will be classes where it will return as normal, where you can have 20 kids, 25 kids in your classroom. Um, generally, the advice has been to implement social distancing, and this is something that has been, that the New South Wales Teachers Federation has been pushing on. So I believe most schools will return with social distancing in place. So that is capping classes at approximately 10 students. Um, uh, and the the state government has also supplied um, safety equipment, so hand sanitizer, tissues, wipes, um, and they've also increased cleaning. So my understanding is that there are additional cleaners at school that are there that are wiping down hard surfaces and high touch areas, so door handles light switches, etc. So I might leave it there to give others the opportunity to respond um, as well, but that's the current situation in, in New South Wales. Yeah, yeah thank you, um, um, Vivian. Um, David, um, we haven't sort of heard from you um, yet. Do you sort of have any perspective on some of the kind of issues, I guess, that have been kind of raised in some of the questions um, that I've asked? Um, yeah, thanks, Jacob. Um, I think just to the first question, um, it was, I actually saw, um, Scott Morrison saying, um, about how he didn't want teachers to be, um, forcing parents into a decision between homeschooling their children and, and, or having their children at home and putting food on the table. And I thought that was just a pretty despicable, uh, use of his position to try to put it on onto teachers like it's it's not there's a global pandemic that's that's uh deadly for thousands of people um as mary said earlier uh it's a workplace um it's not up to it's not up to teachers to keep the economy running um 
and to to characterize the situation like that was uh i found it um quite hurtful and pretty low really yeah and i guess i mean the kind of next kind of thing i kind of want to ask um of all of all of you and um this has been um a bit one of the part uh parts of the debate that has kind of been brought up in terms of this question of schools and I guess with all these kind of schools kind of remote um you know um learning um you know there 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 is this um argument that is kind of raised that it is um disadvantaging um disadvantaged students who don't have access to technology um and of course in some ways, I'd like to kind of comment that it's a bit, it comes off as a bit cynical that the federal government is trying to raise this kind of argument of disadvantaged schools, um, disadvantaged students and disadvantaged schools, um, because it's not, it's not like the government has necessarily had a track, strong kind of track record um, when it comes um, to meeting the interests of disadvantaged students and schools to even begin with, especially on the whole question of funding. And I guess uh, I'm interested in kind of hearing perspectives um, on on how you would kind of respond to the to this kind of debate, I guess that is sort of um, that is kind of coming up around in the context of um, school closures and the questions of schools reopening. Yes, it is true that disadvantaged students will suffer, um, and it might be that they live in homes that are are dangerous in some way, whether it's due to neglect or or even worse, to abuse. Um, so, you know, it, it, again, as David said earlier, it's it shouldn't be up to teachers to be the sacrificial lambs to address something that exists because we live in a society that creates these situations in the first place. Um, that children have to live in such, such circumstances is because we live in a capitalist society, which... Um, puts the needs of profits ahead of funding um, family counselling services, all sorts of other support services that children, women um, in particular, but also some men would would need to, um, to help them. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this question might arise again if teachers decided to strike. Does that mean that we can never strike because we may because it may lead to disadvantaged kids um, suffering. It, it's a difficult position. It's just like nurses um, when they have to decide, do they walk out of the hospital, which means there's going to be less staff and therefore, you know, some patients may be perhaps more vulnerable than if they didn't do that. But um, you have to weigh these questions up and decide what is sort of the bigger the bigger. Um, good, I suppose, that comes out of it. Um, and if you're talking in terms of technology, well, the governments, the state governments had organised loaning out the laptops and um, helping with internet, et cetera, to help students that had problems with those. So those things uh, should not have been an issue. Um, in terms of academic progress, you know, some people have been screaming, oh, they're going to be behind, they're going to be behind. However, behind what? Every student now is in, this, is in a similar situation in terms of academic progress. Although I understand that, you know, 
um, the inequalities are pronounced, but um, teachers will, will be doing their darndest and so will education support staff to help students to be academically re-engaged once schools reopen. Um, but, you know, the bottom line is what's more important, student staff health um, or the economy? I, I think I'll just leave it there. Maybe David and Vivian would like to say something as well. Yeah, I think Vivian wanted to contribute. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, look, I totally agree with with um, the general sentiment of, of Mary's comments that disadvantaged students would be further disadvantaged in this period. Absolutely. Um, you know, we are dealing with very serious issues. I believe uh, I read a study the other day saying that 47% of students are, um, you know, having mental health issues as a result of the, um, you know, remote learning isolate um, isolation measures. So the reality is that the problems are, are very, very real to many of our students. And it's particularly heightened to students that are from low SES communities. Um, I think you can't have a discussion about schools without taking that on board, um, you know, and we also need to consider the mental health of, of teachers too in this because teachers are not separate from the rest of society um, like everyone else. So I would imagine that the mental health of um, issues of teachers have increased. Certainly the workload has increased. Certainly the stress level has increased. Um, I, I can vouch for that, the amount of, of, of stress, <laughs> shifting to remote learning, um, the, the, the workload, the increase in admin, it has been overwhelming. Um, I, 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 without a doubt, am working harder from home, just like many other people, um, because you're glued to your computer. Um, so the challenges are, are different, but the challenges are there. Um, I guess, you know, what uh, are the solutions? Uh, this is a big problem and we can't, as Mary uh, I guess said, it's a pandemic. The normal rules do not apply. Uh, we really need to look at, you know, it's not just about kickstarting the economy. I understand that discussion because if you have lost your job, if you are struggling to, to you know, work out how you're going to pay the rent, then yes, returning to work, getting the kids back to school, these are important. Um, and you, we, we all want to return to, to normal, but normal doesn't exist anymore. I guess it's about the balance. What, how do we return open schools so that it is safe, so that the risk is minimised? I think that's where the discussion needs to be. And it should be a united, consistent approach around the country rather than um, using the private system uh, dangling the carrot of bringing forward funding to put pressure on the premiers of the states, particularly Queensland, New South Wales and Victoria, which I think really is the game that Scott Morrison is playing at as the biggest states. So I guess that's really the discussion um, to be had. But just to finish on this, um, when Scott Morrison talks about disadvantaged students, um, you know, I agree with his points, but he's also responsible for the cutting of funding to those very same disadvantaged students. 
So, you know, he is complicit in, in a system that continues to fund the richest part of the richest, you know, families, the education of the richest families in this country to funnel billions of dollars into the elite schools, into the private system. And this comes at a cost and it comes at the cost of our students who are the most vulnerable, who are the most disadvantaged in, in this country. So, you know, I don't think Scott Morrison can have his cake and eat it too, uh, because if he's going to talk about disadvantage, then we need to talk about how education is funded, uh, how what access uh, access um, to technology our students have and how that is to be done in an equitable way so that no student misses out, particularly those who are disadvantaged. Well, no, first of all, the other point I wanted to make is that and in, in this crisis, it is the government's responsibility to... Um, to supply more resources to those services that do support students and families that are in need. So that should be massively increased. Um, if Morrison and the rest of them are really, really uh, seriously concerned about the welfare of students, that's what they should be doing um, and not berating teachers or trying to shame and emotionally blackmail us into putting ourselves in um, positions of... of um, potential danger. In fact, in fact, this links back to what you asked before, Jacob, about what are schools doing to safeguard people? And prior to the school break in Victoria, we were asking for sanitizers, for other protective um, equipment. None of it appeared. None of it. Um, some teachers were buying their own hand sanitizers. And of course, the students we were not really social distancing. In fact, even if you had um, enough teachers to say we could social distance, we also need the physical buildings to do it. So many schools won't have the classrooms to, um, to divide, you know, groups of, say, 25 into smaller groups because we don't have the classrooms. So social distancing is going to be very, very difficult. And I believe that's why Morrison has been saying it's not necessary in schools. He's saying it's not necessary because he knows it would be very difficult to implement it. Um, yeah, that's enough for me for now. Just quickly, if that's, if that's okay. Um, I think with regards to, well, I agree with everything Vivian and Mary have said. Um, and with regards to the social distancing with, uh, with students, I think it's a really important point that it will be really, really hard to implement for the reasons Mary said, and also because the way that the way that teachers manage students isn't in an absolute way where you say, don't do this and they don't do it or do this and they do do it. It's, it's a, a mix of suggestion and cajoling and, positive um, reinforcement that, that eventually brings kids around to doing what they should be doing, you hope. Often it doesn't work. Um, so the idea that we'll just be able to social distance with kids aged from five to 18 is just, I just can't see it happening without there being you know, physical barriers between people. Like, 
they just won't. They'll they'll go and sit next to each other. They'll have their, you know, little kids will have their snotty hands all over each other all the time. It's just the way it works. I've I've, I've been into school and seen it happening at lunchtime. Little kids are just all over each other, and the teacher will walk up and say, "Guys, you got to split out, split up," and um, they'll sort of look at the teacher for a second, and then they'll jump on each other again. It's just sort of how it works a lot of the time. Um, with regards to uh, the the disadvantage, I totally I'm totally on board with what Vivian and Mary have said. I I've been um, quietly pleased with the response from my school. Uh, I'm not always quietly pleased <laughs> with the responses from my school, but we've handed out and like the tech people have done a great job in handing out. Uh, it must be hundreds of uh, iPads or um, or laptops to students who don't have them. Um, that's been a really good effort. And I've been really pleased that our, our principal has allowed us in the music department to loan out our instruments. Um, so we we went in on a couple of days and had, you know, staggered times for different year levels to come in and grab a guitar or take a keyboard or a ukulele or whatever it was. And yeah, that, that isn't something that the leadership had to get behind, but they did. and. Um, yeah, I think that will help some of the disadvantage, obviously, but not you know, everything. Yeah, nice. Um, I had a question. I'm in the construction union. Our union has been pushing to keep the construction industry open. At the moment, with the curve having been largely flattened, it's kind of not so urgent. But there's a lot of discussion of the potential for a second wave of infections. And one of the things I'm concerned about with my union is there's no indication from the union that if daily infections get to X or if the overall number of infections in the community get to such and such a number, that's roughly about when we think it would be appropriate to shut down the industry. Now, has there been any indication from either education department or has there been discussion in the union about if there's a second wave and infections get to this level that's when we really think schools need to shut down completely I guess you know I might kickstart it but to my uh, knowledge uh, there isn't a position there has not been a position taken from the New South Wales Teachers Federation on that. Uh, look, that being said, um, my understanding is that the executive has met regularly. However, it hasn't been able to meet with with, uh, with delegates. So that is starting to happen. Um, so those those uh, online meetings or versions of state council, etc., will, will commence in some form from this Saturday. Uh, that'll be the first opportunity that uh, members, rank-and-file members, uh, will, will have uh, to raise some of these issues with the, the union leadership. So I think that's a discussion to be had. It would be ideal if the if it were a lot clearer. Um, and so, because I think you're right, it's not for me. It's not just the question of second wave. This is ongoing. Okay, <laughs> it exists. This virus exists globally. It certainly exists in in the community. 
um, and how much community transfer, etc., still remains unclear. Thankfully, the numbers are low, and that's a positive. But it, like we're seeing in this abattoir in 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 Victoria, it doesn't take much um, for those numbers to increase. And you know, schools, and as will be many workplaces as as they open, that the, the chance for that to occur is to increase significantly and my understanding is Scott Morrison even said so yesterday they're prepared to allow that to to increase I, I guess the question is and what we need is is clearer advice from the so-called medical experts on on you know uh, well what what do we do you know how, how can we as a society ensure it, it's safe because David said uh, at a school it will be impossible to, to implement social distancing. Um, you know, certainly uh, in New South Wales, so we're having phase one, one year group at a time kind of thing. Well, as soon as phase two starts, which is increasing those days, it will be impossible because the rooms do not exist to implement social distancing. So um, it is a demand put on the unions. It, it is a point to raise in workplaces. Um, I you know, raised the concern yesterday at our workplace meeting um, about and have started to, to raise it in the union about some kind of assurance. But, yeah, it's a discussion to be had because a vaccine, well, who knows? Who knows if it will be available? We, you know, we just don't know yet what is going to happen and albeit the numbers are low, I don't believe that's going to be the case forever. Uh, the as the Victorian branch of the AU did discuss what would happen if we had a staggered return to teaching because, uh, you know, Victoria is still um, following this remote teaching model. And um, uh, a motion was passed which didn't mention any numbers, um, but it... it sort of reinforced what the Education Department here had previously stated, which is that um, anyone who has is in a vulnerable group should be should continue to work remotely. The thing that it doesn't include is um, that no teacher or no staff member, because there are other people apart from teachers in schools, um, that no staff member should be compelled to work um, if they feel that the workplace is unsafe. However, it was pointed out to us when we raised this concern that there are OHS provisions which can be used if a workplace is not safe. And I, I think, Zane, maybe this might apply to construction sites as well. Um, like a lot of people forget this. I forgot this until we were reminded about it, that there are these laws where your OHS rep um, you know, can shut down a workplace if it is deemed to be unsafe. So everyone should be reminded of that and we shouldn't be afraid to use it. Um, I know perhaps in construction, because I know you've had so many blues with, with horrible employers that don't even want to allow OH&S reps onto your work sites, that might be a little bit more challenging. Um, but anyway, that's something that we should be using as much as possible. So, yeah, that's what we've got in place at the moment in terms of that question, Jacob, or, or Zane, whoever asked it. This kind of, kind of leads, I guess, into um, 
the next kind of question, um, which is, um, you know, from your perspective as teachers, um, if schools are to be reopened as in back to a normal state, as they were kind of pre-pandemic, um, what do you think are sort of the conditions um, that need to be met um, for this to happen? Oh, okay. It's a big question. That is a very complicated question because there's the ideal and there's the reality of how schools work. Um, one of the issues is the overcrowding of schools as they currently exist. And I would imagine that's probably the case in Victoria. It's probably the case nationally. We have very, we have quite a lot of schools. Um, and, you know, the school I work at, for example, is 500 students above capacity at present. That was pre-COVID-19. Um, so the, the issues we had prior to this pandemic, prior to this virus, were already significant. Um, so in an ideal world, you would find makeshift schools and spread students out to, to implement social distancing, just like they're doing in many other workplaces. You would probably, until there's a vaccine, have some combination of, you know, um, school attendance, remote learning, perhaps. I'm, I'm not entirely sure, but the reality is once all students return to face-to-face -to -face teaching, and we don't know when that is, um, I mean, in the case of Western Australia, South Australia, Northern Territory, my understanding is that has already occurred and only 70% of students have returned to, to, to schools in those states. It'll be, we're unclear what the numbers will, will be like in New South Wales as of next week, um, what attendance rates will be like, but it probably won't be 100%. Um, so... There needs to be, uh, I think step one needs to be the cleaning. Um, yes, we have been given additional um, uh, supplies, hand sanitizer, etc., which is good. Um, it's a good start. There is additional cleaning to be increased and needs to be maintained. I would have the concern, as do many others, that we return to this mode of normal and all of that just starts to drop off. It needs to be sustained. Uh, cleaning crews need to be coming through throughout the day, wiping down those those tables throughout the day. Obviously, trying to minimise movement, trying to stagger recess and lunch to minimise to not have 1,400 students out at one given time. Um, but logistically... These things are incredibly hard to do, particularly in a high school setting. Um, extraordinarily difficult um, um, to manage. So I guess it's, you know, the ideal. Well, students should be spread out. Class sizes should be smaller. This is something I think going into 2021 needs to be something that state governments take very seriously. Uh, class sizes... You know, it's already extremely difficult to teach 28 students in one class um, at the best of times. But, you know, the class sizes, this is an opportunity to have a, a discussion about reducing class sizes, that this is maintained. Um, you know, obviously, we would then need to increase staffing. 
um, ensuring that, you know, transition of many of those casual teachers into that permanent employment. And this is a very easy way to do that. Um, a broader discussion then would lead to, you know, infrastructure. We need more schools. Um, you know, we're, the, there's a rush to, to get roads, mines and dams built in this period. Why is that not happening to schools? Why are we not using this as an opportunity to fast track all those schools that are planned in, in, in Sydney and New South Wales, for example? Um, you know, why that should be the discussion. Why are we not talking about expanding hospitals? Okay, well, let's build that additional hospital that, that's been in the, in the plan for the last 20 years for, you know, the discussion should be about the social good and what is important to our society um, as opposed to, to, you know, capitalist greed and, and fossil fuels and expanding coal. Um, but, you know, I suppose, you know, it's another discussion, but that is, you, you know, you can't talk about, you can't talk about infrastructure, you know, without looking at where society's greatest need is. And, you know, in terms of safe schools, well, that has to be part of the longer term discussion. Uh, if I could just add, so, uh, yes, so we would say in Victoria, and it's not going to be any different in New South Wales, that firstly, no one should be compelled to go back. Um, we need to hire more staff, as Vivian has already said, more in Victoria, they're called um, CRTs. Um, and in fact, um, CRTs or emergency teachers are casual teachers. They should be hired as ongoing staff. This used to be the case in Victoria. We did not have any contract work. We had a pool of relieving teachers that were hired centrally by the education department and so ongoing that we should return to that kind of system. Um, that would also be good for the economy because then you've got more workers with wages who can spend more money in the economy. Um, of course, the protective equipment and the cleaning uh, needs to be there and we should have mass testing at schools so that um, as teachers and students come in, they can be tested. There should be no large gatherings, of course, um, if there need to be school meetings of whatever kind, they have to be online until we know that it is safe to go back to physical meetings. Class sizes, as Vivian has already mentioned, need use. This has been something that the um, education workforce has been calling for for a long time. This is a, a great opportunity now to actually um, implement this because then if there were reoccurrences, it would be much easier for the social distancing to take place. Um, and teacher allotments, the number of classes that teachers have to teach need to be reduced as well so that teachers have the energy to help all of those students who are coming back who are going to need extra care, um, not just the VCE students, but those students in particular are going to be expecting a lot of time and energy of teachers. Um, but of course, even the younger students, as Vivian have men has mentioned, they may have suffered from being isolated. There may be all sorts of um, issues. Re-engaging them ac uh, academically will be important. So if teachers have reduced allotments, they can devote that time to actually helping those kinds of um, situations. Yeah, I, I'd agree with, with both Mary and Vivian, and Vivian again. Um, <clears throat> I think, as we've seen with a lot of the other 
human services around the world, um, like education has been redlining for for years and years. Like there's cuts and more cuts. Um, what we need for it to be safe for us to go back is massive investment in in our whole sector and our whole public sector. Um, as a like an example of like a small example uh, from from my experience, like I'm a music teacher, I've got 500 kids or more going through the music room a week, all sharing the same instruments. Um, we're not going to be able to go back to doing that. We can't effectively clean the instruments between use. It's hard enough for us just cleaning the desks. Um, so to be able to to go back to a semblance of normal, we're going to need more investment in our uh, music department to be able to purchase instruments, to be able to loan them out to individual students on an ongoing basis. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a really tough one. I, I'm, I guess it's, it's, a, it's a very difficult situation, but it's also an opportunity. Yeah, so I was um, I was sort of going to go and make my last kind of concluding question um, to talk about, I guess, what are the kind of demands that teachers are demanding this period, but it appears that um, you've all kind of really sort of answered that. And I guess maybe to conclude um, um, this discussion, I guess, are there any sort of final comments um, one of you would kind of like to make that would sort of sum this kind of discussion up? Um, I, I'd just like to say... Uh... Firstly, uh, thanks, Jacob and Zane, for, for giving us or giving me at least the chance to, to talk. Um, I think a lot of the time in the debate about schools going back, teachers have just been sidelined from the whole thing. It's, it hasn't been about teachers at all. and They don't really get much of a voice. Um, I'd also like to say, uh, with regards to the hygiene and um, uh, keeping staff safe at work. I, I really hope that um, school leaderships take it super seriously. I know it, it sounds like that that would be a given, but it's such a dynamic and strange environment when you think about uh, trying to maintain um, social distance and hygiene in a school that, like, I've heard my principal saying, what do you expect me to do when... Um, when that, those hygiene being um, followed by staff and students. And I think, you know, we need to just really take it seriously. And I know that it's incredibly difficult, but there, there's literally lives at stake. Um, yeah, and I'll, I'll finish on that. I guess, you know, closing comments is just um, watch your space. Because uh, this is going to be uh, a continually evolving um, issue. I, I've just got in front of me one of my uh, workmates sent a, a link to an article that uh, Denmark, the infection rate has increased since schools have opened. Now, thankfully, it's small. It's gone from 0.6 to 0.9, so it's still under that that one, um, which is is uh, contained. Um, but it's still early days. So, you know, this is going to be a very, um, it's going to be continually changing is what I'm trying to say. We don't know what's going to happen next, um, but I do not 
see this as being a smooth transition back to normal. I hope it is. I certainly hope that I'm wrong. I'm hope it's contained and the numbers are low and, and you know, for everyone's sake, normal can, can return. But um, I don't think that's going to happen for some time. And, you know, yeah, just watch this, watch your space and we'll see it's going to be an involving debate and, and discussion. I'd like to... Um focus on two other things actually that are related but um, a little bit different and that is the first one is that I think this has um, pushed a lot of us into working together uh, particularly um, teachers across states and I think that has been really useful and I hope that continues. Um, for example the issue of Victoria, um, our class sizes are capped to 25 so when we hear that you have Yes, when we hear that you have 28. So when we get a class of 26, we're all upset down here. So it's really good for us to work together and support each other. Um, and you can use the example of Victoria, and I'm sure we can use examples from New South Wales to sort of bolster our um, respective enterprise bargaining negotiations. And then finally, I want to say that this points out the power that teachers do have, because whenever we talk about taking industrial action, there's all these people in, in the union as well as outside who say, ah, oh, teachers have no industrial power. Um, you're not going to win this by taking industrial action, so forget it. But this has demonstrated so clearly how central we are to the economy, and we have to remember that with our negotiations. So um, I'll just leave it there. Thanks. Right. Yeah. Thank, um, thank you very much, everyone, um, for yeah being able to kind of um, speak out about these um, about the politics, I guess, of some of these issues, and also um, you know be out, it's it's also fantastic to be able to hear, I guess, firsthand from you know actual teachers on the ground as opposed to sort of this sort of dominant narrative from uh, people who aren't even teachers. In fact, when it comes to education, um, the voice we typically hear is that of the bureaucrats, um, some education minister. I hope you got a lot out of this episode. To continue producing shows like this, we need your support. Consider becoming a supporter for $5 a month, sharing this show on social media, and submitting your own stories. You can do all this at our website, greenleft.org.au.